So our, our class tonight on family life lessons in Genesis, I thought it would be good since we're you know, going to start reading Genesis again. Uh, as a community, we usually start out in January with look, going through the book of Genesis. I thought it might be good to sort of like track along and uh, look at some of the family life lessons that were there. Uh, this came about as I think I originally did this with young people and then realized that it's actually something that's probably good for adults as well, because uh, there's a lot of good family life lessons just in the book of Genesis. So hopefully we can have a look at that idea. So one thing you start out with is that God already has a family. You know, he's got angels. He's got a son, Jesus Christ now. And uh, we don't really know how big God's family is. And we don't know how long he has been adding to it. Uh, I remember growing up for years thinking that uh, the angels just came from a previous creation. And I used to figure that, that they were just from a previous creation. But the more you look at the scriptures and realize how much God likes adding to his family, it became evident to me that he probably has been doing that over a long, long period of time. And that what we know as angels are simply a compilation of probably multiple creations from who knows where. And that our goal in the end is to be incorporated into that family because God loves to add to his family. You'll see that in, the, uh, in Ephesians 3, when the Apostle Paul is talking about the inclusion of the Gentiles, one of his reasons that he gives there about the Gentiles coming into the family is because God wants to expand this family, that he has a whole family in heaven and earth that he, he mentions. So he bows his knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Right, and that that's that's what this family really is all about. And our goal for all of us is to become part of this family. So it's God's family has been around for a long time, and it seems like He intends to add to it. And who knows how long that will go. So His role then, His job for all of us is that He has to train us to be members of His family. So if you're going to train somebody to do a job what better way to train you than to actually put you in families yourself? So when you start looking at our family unit that we have and the idea of growing up in families with a husband and a wife and having children and grandchildren and grandparents and the whole works, a lot of people today just look at that and think, well, it just sort of randomly came along. And that's, that's why we have families. But when you start realizing that, wait a minute, this is all by design. If you were going to help people understand how to be members of God's family, what better way to train them than to put them in families themselves, have them go through the very experiences in this life that they're going to need to learn to be part of the divine family. And it seems like that is what God is doing. He's using families to accomplish that goal. So we're going to go back to Genesis and have a look at this whole idea of how God designed families from the beginning and then how it went in the book of Genesis. How, how did the families do? And hopefully we can all learn some great lessons from this because the book of Genesis, when you, when you think about Genesis, you can really pretty much substantiate or at least support most of our doctrinal teachings from just the book of Genesis just Genesis itself. I mean, even resurrection from the dead, you could go to uh, you know, Abraham and the idea that when Abraham told his servant that, uh, that him and, and his boy were going to return, uh, as Paul says in Hebrews, Abraham fully believed that God would be able to raise Isaac from the dead, that resurrection was something that people were aware of even back in the book of Genesis. So the book of Genesis has all these doctrinal teachings that we can go to, but it also has, and you would expect it to have, a lot of good practical lessons about living as a member of God's family. I mean, if, if you think about it, if that's God's intention, is that he's trying to train us to be members of his family, then why not in the very first book of the Bible, why wouldn't you put in all these key ideas, not just about doctrinal teachings, but about family life, so that people would understand what God is trying to do and how he's trying to accomplish this. And you, you give them examples of good families and examples of bad families. 
good choices and bad choices and have people study these things and, and look at them and hopefully learn from them that they were written down for, for our instruction. So Genesis does contain a lot of these fundamental doctrines and it's got great counsel on fundamental family. And because the ecclesia is an extension of that family, it becomes ecclesial issues as well. And it's a whole history of good and bad choices. You know, what, what people did, they were put in situations and you get to read about their choices that they made. And some people made good choices and some people made bad choices. And all these things, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, were, were, they, were, they happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him, thinks, him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So I think you're going to find there's a lot of good practical lessons in the book of Genesis uh, about family life. And, and, and let's face it, everybody's living family life one way or another. Uh, I think probably since COVID-19 happened, many of us uh, are spending more time with our families than, uh, than we were used to before that. I know if I had been going to school and teaching school and, and been gone for like eight hours a day, uh, this is a whole different story being home all the time. Uh, I got used to this over the summer when I, I was home as a teacher, but for many people, that's a whole new thing. And uh, some folks aren't used to being home with their families, with their children. And uh, for a lot of guys, that's, that's a major adjustment that they have to make, and girls too. So the first thing I want to look at is marriage comes up right away in Genesis chapter 2 at verse 18. And the Lord God said, it's not good for a man to be alone, so I will make him a helper suitable to him. That's the NASB has that rendering, a helper suitable. So what you find out right away is that God never really intended for all the guys just to be on their own and the girls to be on their own. The intention all along was that Adam was supposed to have a helper suitable to him, somebody who could help him and could support him and actually uh, they could help each other along the way. That's what God intended. He was never an isolationist. He didn't support the idea of becoming like a monk and going off somewhere and just living on your own away from everybody and having no interaction with all the people. He actually expected us to be working with someone else and groups of people, and that's what God had intended. And so in families, what you find is that we are encouraged to help other people. When you're around other people and you're involved in their life, inevitably you help them. You find out well, what can we do to help? And you find out that that's a good thing because by helping other people, you end up helping yourselves at the same time. So that idea of a helper comparable to him, the New King James says, or suitable for him in the NASB, it does imply that we should be looking for spouses to the young people. If you're ever counseling young people, you should be looking for a spouse who will help your spiritual life. That's what God had intended right from the beginning. It wasn't somebody who necessarily just satisfied the fact that somebody looks good. Um, he was hoping that people would find folks who were, were compatible with them and they would be a helper suitable for them. And that's what God had hoped all along. And when you look at all the animals being formed from the ground in Genesis, we, we know that when God formed Eve, it specifically says that Eve was taken out of Adam, whereas the animals were all formed from the ground. And God wants us to realize that right from the start. So you start picking up clues as you're reading through Genesis chapter 2 that this story is bigger than just Adam and Eve. And it is. It's bigger than Adam and Eve. Because the way God wrote the story, the way the entire creation was done, it was done in a sense as a parable of a much bigger story that God was intending to have a marriage of his son to his bride, and that the bride would be redeemed uh, and taken, in a sense, out of the side of, of, the, of Adam, that the bride would be saved in him. And God wanted folks to realize that right from the beginning. And, and this is even before sin was ever committed. But this is what a God can do. This is what a designer can do or a creator can do. You can, you can look at the goal ahead of time and say, Here's where this creation is going. Here's what these people are going to need to know and learn if they're going to become part of my family. Now, how are we going to teach them this? 
How are we going to help them learn these things? How are we going to train them? And so he creates Adam, lets Adam realize he would be better off uh, with, with a wife than being alone. And he takes that wife out of Adam while he's sleeping and he creates Eve and brings Eve to Adam and he makes a helper that is suitable for him. And the two of them then become a partnership in walking in this world. So you look at that in Genesis and then you start realizing, well, the New Testament writers realized this was a much bigger story too, because when the apostle Paul or Peter or somebody refers back to this story in Genesis, they make a much bigger deal out of it than just that it just happened to happen in Genesis and all oh, it was just about Adam and Eve. Oh no, they, they take this to be much bigger principles. So in the RSV of 1 Timothy chapter 2, we have let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men, for she is to keep silent. Now look at the reasons Paul gives as to why the, that sisters are supposed to not become teachers in, in our Bible classes. He says, Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. So the two reasons that he gives why this is supposed to be happening today are both reasons that occurred before Adam and Eve ever sinned. I think that's something we gotta realize. These are not just things that came up as a result of sin. These are reasons that Paul gives as a result of the way we were created the original creation and what happened. So Adam wasn't deceived, but the woman was deceived. Now that's when sin was actually taking place. But what that means then is that the way Adam and Eve were created is that the woman was in a sense uh, easier to deceive for the serpent than, than Adam was and became the transgressor. And yet woman will be saved through bearing children if she continues in faith and love and holiness with modesty which I do, I do believe that's not through bearing the child, which some people think it was just about a woman being saved because they would, the woman would someday give birth to Christ. But I really think what you're looking at right here are the roles that God had designed for Adam and Eve right from the beginning, that women would be saved through bearing children. And bearing children there isn't really just having a baby in a hospital some way and, and walking out. The, the word for bearing children there is, is the idea of rearing children because God had designed it when we raised children. He found that that was going to be a great way for girls to learn Bible spiritual principles about how to become a member of God's family. You think about what we hope to do in the kingdom. We, we wanna work with the mortal people that are on the earth. We're gonna work with them and with their children. What better way to learn how to work with people than to raise children yourself? It's a great training ground. You learn all kinds of things and sure it wears us out and it stresses us out and it's, and it's a lot of trouble. But at the same time, you look back in your life and you realize, wow, look at what I learned from this and look at how I became a different person because of raising children or working with children. And I really think that's what Paul sees uh, happening for women here in 1 Timothy chapter two. So his conclusions that he makes about why the women should learn in silence, uh, which I really believe is, is, you know, for the most part in our meetings, like we, we do here, is that he's looking back at the way the angels created Adam and Eve, how God set this all up, that Adam was formed first and then Eve, and that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. So really, when you look at the sins of Adam and Eve, they really weren't the same. The woman really was, she was fooled. She was deceived. But Adam wasn't fooled. He went into it with his eyes wide open, knowing what he was doing. And it, it's not a case of who's better or who's worse. It's just something to be aware of that the way we have been created, because of the hormones that are going through our bodies, even when we're inside our mother, when we were forming, those change us. And they, they turn us into different people as genders. And it's not a case of one's better than the other. It's a case of where one is better than the other for a specific task. And what guys might be good at, girls are not so good at. And what girls are great at, guys are not so good at. 
uh, you find that out when you start, you know, attending all guy meetings and you're talking about compassion and kindness and loving. And that's, uh, it's just harder for guys to do that than it is for women. That, that compassion that, that women have for children and for other people uh, is just something that men really have to work at. And it seems to come much more naturally to women. So that's there right back in the beginning when Adam and Eve were created and God established those roles. But make sure you walk away from this. I don't want anybody thinking that, uh, that Jim Stiles says that guys are more important than girls. That is not it at all. It's, it's a case of we've got different talents and God's trying to train us in a way that caters to our talents and, uh, and not put us into situations where we're not gonna necessarily make good decisions. And hopefully in a marriage, we can learn from each other about these roles and we can become better at it ourselves. The society that we grow up in today is, is all mixed up in this stuff and they get all confused. I can still remember when I was teaching school back in the, uh, the 70s and the 80s and teaching high school and I was teaching biology at the time and, and realizing and reading about all the research coming out in biology about how boys and girls, the genders are so different when they're born already because their brains have already been changed because of the hormones going through the baby when it was inside mom. And yet politically, it was totally incorrect to ever acknowledge that. And so all these people were being told in the United States, at least back in the 70s and 80s, all about gender equality and how everything was all equal. And uh, all the biologists were looking at this, holding their tongues, just saying, oh boy, uh, someday it's gonna come out. But uh, it, it took a while and eventually it does come out that, because what happens in the end then is if you think that we're all the same and that we're all supposed to be able to function at the same level and we're all supposed to be good at the same stuff, it just puts a lot of stress on people when you realize I'm not good at that. That's not something I, I'm any good at at all. And uh, there's other people that can do a much better job. And so why not let the ones that are good at that do those jobs? And you, when you look at that, you'll, you'll see that uh, in ecclesial life and in family life. So the issue, it, it really isn't just about better either, because you, you can look at families a lot of times and you can say, well, you know, the, 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 the woman in the family, a wife, the mom, maybe mom is a better leader. Maybe she understands the Bible better and maybe she can explain the Bible better. And you're sitting around doing the Bible readings as a family. And yet what ends up happening is that God says what he wants to happen is that he wants the children to realize that dad is a spiritual leader. And so in that situation, it's good for women to support their husbands and help them and make suggestions and do those kind of things when, when people are doing the Bible readings at home. It's not a case of who's better as much as it is that God has designed it so that if children grow up seeing a father and a father who is a spiritual leader and, and, and they watch moms in a sense work with this, that what that teaches them as children growing up is they start to realize how it works with God. And that they then they get used to this idea that, wait a minute, in the same way that dad was the spiritual leader of the family, as a child matures and goes through their teenage years, they realize, wow, this isn't really just about dad. This is about God. God is the spiritual leader of who that I want to follow. And, and that's part of what he's hoping that our children will find out in family life if the family runs according to the way God designed it. That's what he's hoping for, at least. And the structure of our family is all designed by God so that we will learn bigger, more important issues than just our families right now. So men, brethren, what are we responsible for? Well, you know, we are responsible, like Christ, we should be leaders. We're supposed to be providers. We wanna save other people and teach them and give, give our lives for our spouses and our children and show them what Christ did for us and how much we appreciate it. This is the role of a man in a family or a brethren in ecclesial life. This is what we should be doing. And a lot of families struggle when brethren do not come through, when the dads don't do it, and the dads shy away from their responsibilities. But what God designed is he's got a program that helps our children grow up to understand God if they can look in our families and realize how the divine family works. So we've got to be reading and, and studying and, and praying and be involved in our families. 
And when I say studying, I don't mean that you don't come home from work and lock yourself up in a room for three hours and say, I got to study. Oh, no, you do that when the kids go to bed. But we've got to be involved with our children we, and, and help them and, and show that we're a part of this family and we are leaders in the family. That's what we should be doing. And we look to Christ as the ultimate example. And when you look at Jesus Christ, no matter what people did to him, no, how, no matter how they mistreated him, no matter what was going on, he was the ultimate example of the focus of on saving other people. He wasn't in it for himself. He was in there worrying about everybody else. You, you, you see that in the, the chapters of John from 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Here, here he is facing crucifixion. And he's, he's trying to get all the things in order for like, what's going to happen when I'm gone and making sure that, you know, Peter will respond and that making sure that they, they understand what it is to wash somebody's feet and be a servant. These are all the things Christ was doing. He's praying for them as he's walking up from Jerusalem and he's going up the, the valley and coming up to the, the, to Gethsemane. He's praying that God will strengthen these disciples because his focus was on saving others. And that's why the designer, God, has put us into families, brethren. He wants us to practice this now. Because if we shy away from this and we don't want to participate in this, why would God ever want to give us immortality and put us into situations where this is what we're going to be doing in the kingdom age? We're going to be working with people, with the mortals in the kingdom age and helping them. And who knows what people will be working with, their, their creations in the future. This is what God wants. He wants people that stand up and take on their responsibilities. And what about the moms? Well, for the moms, Timothy, Paul reminded Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 5, I desire that the younger widows marry and bear children and manage the house and give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. And that word that he uses there in the Greek for manage the house that's oiki despotio. You know, you can see it's got the word despot in there. It's like you rule the household. He wants moms that can take care of children and can rule the household and bring order to your house. He wants a household that runs in peace and it's well-ordered where mom and dad are working together and they encourage one another and they're helping each other out and they provide a unified uh, position to the children because this is the framework where it will encourage children to grow up and understand how God's family works. It's not just about our families right now. It's about the family to come. And the whole thing is a training program. The whole thing is a training program. And the sooner we realize that, the more sense life will make for all of us. And in the end, you know, I think it's really important for all of us that you know, if our children grow up and God blesses us with calling our children and helping them understand the truth or other people that we work with in ecclesial life, uh, whoever it is that we're working with, that we have to make it clear to everybody that all the credit and the glory goes to God. It's not because I'm smart or because I did this or I did that and you didn't, which is what happens a lot of times in Christadelphia. It's all about God's, it's God's family, it's God's plan, and he is the one who gets all the glory because we would never know what to do if it wasn't for God. He designed the families in the first place. He's the one who has shown us how to raise godly children. And we have to thank God for that and appreciate it and praise him when it goes right. So in 1 Corinthians 11, you see, like, the, the Apostle Paul talks about this whole order in the family, and then he extends it to the spiritual family, right? So what do you do when you come together as an ecclesia? For, you know, the man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Sound familiar? very similar to what he wrote to Timothy. Again, two things that are all about the original design creation. It's not about after sin. This is about the original design of the creation. Man was not from woman, but woman from the man, and nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man, all right? And for this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, a lot of people stumble over that, wonder like, well, why because of the angels? 
Well, because the angels were the ones who were probably making those decisions back in Genesis about, you know, how are we going to create the woman? We're going to take her out of the man. And they were the ones who made the man first. And then they made Eve after they made the man. So it was the angels' decisions of trying to, like, design this creation to bring glory to God and raise godly children so that's why we submit to what the angels have put in place. They are the ones who decided this was a good way to train people to grow up to be godly, godly children. So he, as he points out, nevertheless, neither is man uh, independent of woman or woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. So it's not, and, and Paul's trying to clarify this, it's, it's not like you can say one's better than the other or one is more important than the other. It was never about that, but it was about the design of the creation in order to raise godly children. God wants to train us to be part of his family. And these were decisions that he and the angels made before sin was ever, ever came in because he was trying to teach Adam and Eve and their descendants about how to become part of his family. So, you know, if anybody wants to jump in, by the way, just go ahead and unmute and, uh, and throw in your two cents worth because uh, I, I don't need to just keep rambling on here, but uh, don't, don't feel like you just got to listen all night. It, uh, it's fine by me. And if I don't hear you, just talk louder. And maybe if I totally miss you, Jim can spotlight you. <laughs> and if not, I will keep going. So one of the things that you run into with evolution, evolution, is that some people wonder, like, well, why does it really matter whether we believe in the in evolution, this theistic evolution stuff that God just used evolution and, and macroevolution here, the evolution of species? Why does it really matter if we believe that versus believing that God created Adam and Eve? Uh, why does that really even matter? So the problem you run into is that evolution by, by nature is a random thing. It just sort of randomly comes along. There, there's no rhyme or reason to it other than the fact that, well, that supposedly nature selects which organisms are best fit to survive and which features they will have. So what do you want to have? On one hand, you can have evolution just saying, well, nature itself makes selections, or you look at it the other way and you realize, wait a minute, God designed this. This is a designer who has put it together like this. And he has a reason for why these things work the way they do. And he's trying to design an immortal family that will learn about him and reflect his glory. That's a whole different premise than the idea of evolution of species. And the other thing you run into in the evolution of species, it really, it's basically just humanism. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's organizing and, and reasoning out from the bottom up of trying to figure out how we all got here and, and why we're here. So it, it's all about humanism, about what works for humans and this idea of who's fit to survive in our world. Whereas when you look at it from creation, from the creation perspective, you can start to see the designer and why he's put things the way he has. Why did he make it so that you would have a man and a woman marry in order to have children? Why did he make it so that humans, that we have to raise children for almost 20 years before they're, they're mature enough to go out on their own? You know, you, you look at other species and you watch a giraffe be born or a horse and you watch a horse come out of its mother and literally within one minute, it's standing up and walking and it's a whole different world. And why did God do this? Is this random evolution or is this design? And see, you start to realize, wait a minute. He wanted us as parents to spend all this time raising our children because it's a training program. He's trying to get us to understand the work that we will be doing in the kingdom age, how to work with people. And if our children were just born and within a few months they were ready to go out on their own, we'd miss all those opportunities. And that's why it really does matter how you look at this in terms of evolution of species or whether a divine creation. A divine creation implies a designer and a designer has reasons for why he's put it this way. You look at some of the key traits that God is trying to develop in his children. He is after faith. 
He wants us to have faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. So what does he do? He puts us into families where all the time we are being challenged and stressed to make decisions based on faith. Look how much easier it would be to just go up and be a monk somewhere and just be on your own. But instead, God says, oh, no, you're going to probably get married. You're going to have children. And then you're going to be a member of an ecclesia. And you're going to have all these forces working on you all the time. And they're going to challenge you all the time. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is the basis upon which he can save us. And so in families and in ecclesias, we get to practice this. We don't run away from it. We don't decide it's too much for us to handle. We figure that this is the opportunity to grow in faith. You look at faithfulness to a covenant. That's one of the Bible principles as you're going through the Old Testament this year. You will see that all over the place. As we're finishing up in Malachi right now in the Bible readings, look at how God got after the Levites. And he said, you Levites, you made a covenant. I made a covenant with you. I was faithful to my covenant, but you weren't. You weren't faithful. And he goes after them for the fact that you're not faithful to the covenant you made with your wives. You're just divorcing your wives and marrying another one. You're not practicing faithfulness. And so what God has done in marriages and with children and with ecclesias, it's that we make a, a commitment. We have a covenant, the marriage covenant that we make when we get married. But we, we end up having a commitment we make to ecclesias as well. And our, 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 our opportunity is there, brethren and sisters, to practice faithfulness. This is how you learn how to be faithful during tough times, is by living in families, living in ecclesias. There's plenty of time to practice because there's lots of things that can go wrong and there's lots of stresses that come into our lives. And this is where we get the opportunity to grow in faith. You look at women today. So often in my life, at least I've grown up with a lot of women challenging the whole idea of submission, submission to a husband, you know, and why should, why shouldn't we be equals and why should we even have to do this? But you know, when you look at the concept, God is, is at pains to teach people submission. Human nature doesn't want to submit. We don't want to submit. And so he brings things into our lives to try to train us to be submissive. I think a lot of the girls in, in God's family have a real one up on the guys because you are being trained better to submit than the guys are. We, guys get put into these positions where we think we're in charge and we, we think we think we have all this power. And God constantly is trying to knock us down to try to remind us that, wait a minute, we've got to submit to God and to you know, submit yourselves under the, the mighty hand of God. And yet wives, a lot of times you're getting to practice this all the time and you're way ahead of the guys in this. And in the end, all of us have to submit to one another in ecclesial life. That's what we need to do. This is how God's family works. You, you can imagine as you're, as you're going through the Bible this, this year, and you start out in Genesis, and you're reading all these things about angels. And you start realizing how God's family works when you look at how angels operate. Uh, imagine if angels had arguments with each other. What if angels decided, I don't want to submit to Michael. Who's Michael to be in charge of me? And, and what if these things were going on in God's divine family? And they weren't faithful to God. They, these are key things that we have to work out in this life. We've got to get good at this because they're critical components to have in our character in order for God to grant us immortality. Obedience and respect is another one. You look at how children grow up. And we have to, as parents, we have to train our children to be obedient to us, not just because it's easier for us or we look bad if our children aren't obedient to us. It's because we want them to understand obedience to, to an authority so that when they become teenagers, they will transfer that over to God. That's the goal. You know, we, and you look at how this works. God gives us years to practice with our children, thankfully. And it, it's, it's a good, positive thing. But 
This is what design does in family life. You design it this way so these key components will get worked on and practiced and practiced until we get it right. And to the people that walk away from it and just say, well, I don't care about faithfulness. I don't care about submission. I don't care about obedience and respect. I just want to do what I want. God isn't going to be able to save them because they're not being trained to become part of his family. And then you look, the last one on the list there, there's more you could put down here, but look at mercy. Look at this idea of mercy in a family. Look at how often as parents, we have to extend mercy to our children. And sometimes children have to extend mercy to parents because parents make mistakes too. I can still remember the, the one time that my, my dad, my brother, Ken and I, we used to get in little arguments and fights and wars all the time. And he'd chase one another around the house. And one time, um, I don't know whether it was Ken was chasing me or I was chasing him, but we ran into our bedroom and Ken, Ken slammed the door. And my dad come running out because my mom was sick. And he came out and he whacked me on the, on the rear end and he got after me for slamming the door. And I just looked at him and said, I didn't do it. <laughs> and it's like, well, that was the one mistake I can remember my dad making in his whole life with me. All the rest of the time, I was totally guilty. But that one time, it was like, you, you get a chance to practice mercy, even with your parents, because you realize we all make mistakes. And you look at husbands and wives, look at how often in a marriage relationship, you get to practice mercy in your family. You have to, you, it, the family falls apart if you don't learn about mercy. And what God is hoping, brothers and sisters, is that in our families, when we practice faithfulness to a covenant and submission and obedience and respect, and we practice mercy with our own nuclear family, our spouses and our children, he is hoping that we will learn to extend that out to his ecclesial family. We have to. We can't just do it with our own spouse and with our own kids. We then have to take those same principles and apply them to all of God's family. And that's where things get challenging. It's a lot easier to do it sometimes with your own family than it is with everybody else in ecclesial life. But it's important. We have to learn to do this because he's training us to work as angels with the people in the, in, the, in the kingdom, in the mortals in the kingdom. So God's given us lots of ways to practice these critical things in our families. And parents, we have a huge responsibility to manifest God's ways to our children. Our children are looking at how we behave, not so much about what we say. You can say all you want doing Bible readings with your kids, you can tell them all the things you want to about how you're supposed to behave, but what they're going to do is watch how do you really behave? How do you treat your spouse? How do you treat other people in ecclesial life? How do you talk about the ecclesia when you come home from meeting? Well, what do you really think about it? That's what our kids are watching. They're, they're watching all those things, and that's what helps them form their decisions about how involved they want to get whether the God that we worship is really the God that they want. They're watching to see how we behave. So God designed marriage to be for life. That's what he did. And in the Genesis creation, when you read about it, you know, it talks about Adam and Eve coming together and the two would become one flesh. So you read in the New Testament, in Mark chapter 10, when the Pharisees were challenging Jesus about the idea, well, can we divorce our wives for this reason or that? He says to them, look, at from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. He did it. He designed it that way. He didn't have to. He didn't have to do that. He could have just made man and made man in such a way that man could have children by cloning or that men could have children in some ways like other organisms do on our planet that are just have asexual reproduction. You know, that goes on with all kinds of species on this planet. But what God wanted was male and female for a reason. And so for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. See, this is a huge Bible principle. 
This is where we practice faithfulness. This is where we practice mercy. This is where we do all those things. And we come together in our families and our children grow up realizing that, wow, there's something going on here where these two are working together. And someday they realize, oh, wait a minute, this is like God in Christ working with us. And you form a relationship with them where you work to save the other person. And this is what God does for us all the time because God's designed it to save us and our children and the rest of the ecclesia, all the people that we work with. There's a place, you know, in the readings in Malachi that are coming up right now in Malachi chapter two. I can't remember if that's today or yesterday. When was that? Malachi two? Anybody remember where that is? Sue and I, we, we read whole chunks at a time. So I don't know, but somewhere in the readings uh, or, or somewhere at Malachi 2 is going to come up. Might have been yesterday. But anyways, do you, you remember this section in Malachi 2 when he's, he's going after the Levites for the fact that they were divorcing their wives. They weren't faithful to the covenant. They were setting the wrong example. They, they weren't practicing righteousness. So he goes on and argues the case. When God made the creation, did he not make one in verse 15? Yet had he the residue of the spirit? And wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none of you deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Because so many of them were breaking their marriage covenant and they were just taking another wife. But the way that King James reads that, I've always liked the fact that you look in the original Hebrew and people will tell you, well, they're not really sure which way it could go. But when you look at context, context, he's arguing the case about why you should stay with your wife, why you should be faithful to your covenant. So he goes back to Adam and Eve and he says, look at when the angels made Eve, what happened? Did they run out of juice and they couldn't make another one? Is that what went on? No, they only made one woman for Adam because they were after godly children. There's a reason this is all designed this way. There's a man and a woman, there's a family unit, and this is the best way God has said to raise children, to raise a godly seed. It's not so good leaving a wife and finding another one and finding another one and splitting up the family and bringing in all these other people. That's not a good way to go. He's trying to teach us that there is a better way. And so the encouragement is there to follow the divine way, the way he originally designed it. So God designed it that way. One man, one woman, a relationship for life, because he knows this is the best way to develop godly children. So what do we have to do? We got to trust him. We, we have to trust him at times when it seems impossible. You look at somebody like Abigail in the scriptures. Look, look at Abigail. and Look what she's living with in Nabal. What a fool Nabal was. And, you know, to a lot of people, you'd go to a marriage counselor today, and a lot of people would tell Abigail, get out of that relationship. Get out of there. You know, you shouldn't even stay in it because you, he's married, you're married to such a fool. But she follows God's way. She stays with him and waits for the day in which God removes Nabal. And, and he does. And then eventually she gets married to David, the king of Israel. But it's because she faithfully waited. She practiced patience. She practiced submission. She practiced endurance under trials and was probably mistreated left and right. She practiced all those things. And in the end, she came out as one of the champions of spiritual life in the, in the Bible. She's going to be one of those great people to meet. So we got to aim high, brothers and sisters, in our lives. And don't give in to what you see happening in this world today, where people just, you know, go out and solve their problems by getting divorced and remarried, divorced and remarried. So in Genesis 3, verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So what does that mean? So husbands, our job is to set the spiritual standards for a family to direct our spouses and our children towards God. That's the responsibility of every husband. And what wives are supposed to be able to do is then look to their husbands for spiritual direction and follow it. And this way, our children learn how to submit, to submit to us, and eventually to submit to God. That's what God is hoping through all of this. That's what the design is supposed to do. 
And this is how God and the angels designed our families to work. And this does fail sometimes. It does. But we got to make the most out of bad situations. We pray about it. We pray that somehow God will bring good out of bad. And that's where we get to practice faith. Because God's trying to teach us to trust him and to trust him. And he will resolve situations. Maybe not always in this life, but he will resolve them. And, you know, just like Job was having to, to wait patiently and let God work through this, we have to practice patience with God because he does have a good way to solve our problems. So you look in somewhere like Ephesians 5, where the apostle Paul, you know, goes back and he looks at all these ideas because we, we can read through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we can just think, well, this is all about just how our nuclear family is supposed to work. But then when you get to Ephesians 5, you realize, oh, wow, Paul saw a much bigger principle at work. Or we are members of his body, he says in Ephesians 5 at verse 30, of his flesh and of his bones. See, that's just like Eve being taken out of Adam, members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this reason, he quotes Genesis 3, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he goes back to that verse, and he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It was all about Jesus Christ and his body of believers that were taken out of him and that he would form a covenant with, be faithful to them, and he would save them in the, in the marriage of the Lamb. That's really what all these things were about in, back in Genesis. And so God wrote them into Genesis. They became part of our creation in the way that Adam and Eve were actually created. They become something that we live out in our families. And at the same time, they're teaching all of us and our children about God's salvation, how it works, that, it, that we would all be saved by being in Jesus Christ. And see, this is what a designer does, brothers and sisters. They, they come up with a great plan and, and you implement the plan. That's a whole different way of looking at our world today and our families than evolution would ever tell you. It's, it's not gonna work in evolution. It's creation has power. The design has power. It was always all about Christ and his bride. So the whole design of the families and the children was all about teaching us redemption. This is how God intended to redeem Adam and Eve and their children after they had sinned, because God knew that it was eventually going to happen, that they would fall. So he built into the entire creation the, the, the whole plan about how they would be redeemed. And he taught that when it's something we practice then in our families. So when God created Adam and Eve in chapter one of Genesis, he made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living thing that moves on the earth. See, God wanted Adam and Eve to have children. He wanted them to have kids because he wants the whole purpose of the creation was to expand his family and extend it out. And again, if you follow an evolutionary perspective, you end up thinking, well, what does it matter when I get married? What if I have children or don't have children? Why would I want to have children? They're just going to cost me. They're going to cost me money. They're going to cost me time. They're going to cost me stress. All those things that God is going to use to train us to be part of his family. But see, evolution would just say, well, go ahead and do it. What does it matter? But when you understand the design part of it, you realize this is what God wants us to do. And uh, certainly there are times where he withholds, as you see in the scriptures over and over again. But this is what God wants. He wants us to have children and expand his family. You see Psalm 127, that children are at heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children in one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Because our children, brothers and sisters, they're the future of our ecclesia. Where would we be today if, if our parents hadn't had kids? Our ecclesias would just dwindle uh, to, to a large extent. 
But this is how God trains us, and he brings more of his family into the community. So raising godly children and grandchildren is the big goal. And we got to have somebody at home instructing our children. We can't just be farming them out all the time. The focus of mom and dad should be on raising godly children. And we get that right. When we get it right and we really believe it and we go after it, a lot of the other problems in, in marriage life dissolve. And what we do with our children is very similar to what the angels are doing with us. This is our practice time now to become angels. We're learning how to work with kids, work with immature, work with children who make a lot of mistakes and learning how to extend mercy and training things. And how do we help them understand not to do this again? These are all things that we're gonna be using with the mortal people in the kingdom age. And this is the time to practice and learn. So God views child rearing as one of the most important roles we could ever fill. Now you look at this, all, all of you that are raising children, you, you are raising God's children for the future age, children that will become part of his family forever and, and live up to the glory and the praise of God. There is no greater role that anybody could play today than raising godly children. And you'll see that stress over and over again. And for all of the moms and dads that get to do this today, it's a real blessing. It's, it not only saves us, but it saves those that we work with. So for tonight, we'll leave it at there. God does use families to develop his family. He's using our nuclear families. He uses your family as opportunities to grow in God's character. And that's the way we should look at it. Don't walk away from it. Get involved and realize it's God's training program. It's not good to be alone. Don't move off into isolation and think somehow we're going to do better. It's not just about me and my spiritual life. I've got to be helping other people. I have to be. And by doing that, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Look for a spouse. If you're still of that age, it's, it's uh, at a marrying age, look for a spouse who's a helper fit for you in God's family. And our goal should always be to save our spouse for both brethren and sisters. And marriage, when we go into it, it is for life. It really isn't ours to break. We should go into it realizing the intent is to stay married for life because we want to raise godly children. Now, I realize there's times where raising godly children can be really tough in marriages. And uh, even the Apostle Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians 7. But the, the initial goal of what we want to go after is a man and a woman who are serving God. And that's what the Bible stresses. Aim for the prize. So parents, focus on developing godly children. So for dads, you got to be a spiritual leader for your spouse and your kids. And for moms, make sure you're available at home for your children when they need you. And dads, too. And let's all recognize that men and women have different God-given strengths. The way we've been created, different strengths and different weaknesses. And therefore, in family life and ecclesial life, he has given most of us different roles. And what we do is we appreciate the role of the other person because we realize they're better at this than I am. And so you, you, you start to realize, wow, I can actually learn from them how to do a better job at this or for that. I've learned so much from Sue about raising children or showing compassion to people and, and learning how to read people and, and whether somebody's not feeling well and she can just look at them and tell. And there's all kinds of things like this that I am no good at. And we can learn from each other, brethren and sisters, if we realize that we are different and we can use those differences to tap into one another's strengths. So don't fight against God's design, give into it, let it work and let him grow faith and godly families in us. Mm -hmm.